Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers, hence the whole in whole truth, were creative geniuses, help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change. This is more than a podcast. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and joining us on this journey. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome everybody to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. And from Atlanta, Georgia, the tree-cutting capital of the world, I'm Kurt Dupuis. That's that's the sawing in the background. Kurt decided to- there, there, there might be a little bit of noise, guys. They're, they're clearing the rainforest behind Kurt right now. Yeah, I live, I live in the woods and they're coming to rescue me. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how good the- uh, the engineers are of clearing that background noise out of here. And we've got Jason back on, my internal Jason's walk. How are you, man? Doing well. How are you guys doing? We got some uh, really nice feedback when you were on last time. So Jason's going to share a couple of tips for working remotely. And even though at some point we will normalize, you're going to still do more remote working than, than you have in the past. And so uh, we're going to have Jason share some of his research that he did on this. It'll be kind of a topic we talk about uh, throughout the whole year. And then after we're done with Jason, we're going to have our interview with Mary Mock, who's back on for the second time as, uh, what is it, Kurt? Queen of the world, head of everything. That's her new title. I'm going with Grand Poobah. Grand Poobah, yeah. yeah. I like Queen Mary. I think she likes that too. She does seem to like that a lot. <laughs> so Jason, why don't you, you know, background here is I was just like, hey man, um, we're going to do a show on, we want to give some tips on working remotely and you went into research mode for a long while and you came I up did. with some tips. Yeah. So what are you going to do? Cover five? Can I guess what the first one is? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Jason has a fan above his head that was like a halo and now it's stopped, which is less distracting. So is that one of your tips? Like turn the fan off? When you're uh, well, admittedly, my workspace at home is probably not the best. Um, my tip would be do not sit in the seat that I'm sitting in right now because I do have a fan above my head. I got a, a Peloton bike behind me. Uh, this is the space I have to work with. I've thought about moving it around, but uh, one of my tips is do turn off the fan because it can be a bit distracting. So the person who said don't do what I do working remotely is now going to give us yeah. tips on what to do. Okay. I see how this is all working out. <laughs> this isn't from my own personal experience. This is from my deep research that I did over the past week. Do what I say, not what I do, essentially. Exactly. Okay, cool. So you've got, what do you have, five for us? I got five main ones. And are these ranked in any way, or you just got five in no particular order? No particular order. Okay. So but I, I do think the first one is very important, so I will start there. Um, so first tip would be to also understand the client benefits in the remote model. I think a lot of people think, you know, how it benefits them or doesn't benefit them, but there are client benefits to working remotely, uh, gives clients freedom and flexibility. You know, they don't have to commute to and from your office to have a meeting. They can do it wherever they're at. Tell me if this is in line with what you're thinking, Jason, you know, there's that group or subset of clients that love to get together in person and go out and interact. And then there's the group of other people that probably aren't going to. So I'm seeing teams that have higher participation rates from some people that, and by the way, I would be this person. I'd rather do it to learn something over this than, than to go to, you know, the restaurant every single time. I would be the opposite. You would be the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but is that the kind of thing you mean? Like there, there really are benefits to 
being able to offer services digitally? Well, I think that's one of them, but also, you know, like I said, the clients don't have to come to your office to have meetings. They can have them in uh, in the comfort of their own home. This is going to be one of those things where things are not going to normalize how we think they're going to normalize. Even if, if you're doing four reviews a year, you know, one every quarter, I still think a lot of people would opt in. Even if they're on the social side, they want to get together and they want to see people face to face. Why not take two of these digitally? I, I don't see that this goes away. I think this is going to be here to stay. Sure. But um, there's a lot of financial advisors that are totally remote and, and, and they can prospect clients outside of their area, um, different states. People, people do. There are certain subsets of clients that want to do this all remote. And so that doesn't limit you to where you're living to prospect those clients. You can do that from anywhere. And so that's a benefit to them as well, to, to the financial advisor. I like it. Tip one, understand the benefits. Good. Tip two. So, um, you know, one hard thing about working from, from home is you don't have regular contact with your team. Uh, so it's important to do that, to, to make time and have regular contact. So some things you can do, schedule recurring and consistent virtual team meetings, uh, having an instant messaging system. Um, there's project software. I have a couple of names for them, but I'm not going to use them because they're not subscribing to the podcast. But, you know, they, there's places where you can keep projects centrally located with tasks assigned to each user. And there's a certain one that has a dependency function that will actually kick off these tasks in sequence, which can help cut down on confusion. So there's a lot of great software out there. Well, we we did our survey. It's a really good point, Jason, because we did our survey on on remote um, working and the pandemic and what people, you know, kind of thought of all those things. And the big hole that we found is, is you know, hey, we handled the clients mostly well. We handled the investments mostly well. But managing team was the challenge. And I think some yeah. of the things that you that you name there, um, the the virtual huddles, the things that I, I think you've got to wow. integrate some of that stuff. Well, and I think about how the role of wholesaling is going to change with that, because if if people are more digital, communication between teams, differing teams, yeah. going to change. And that was one of the comments, one of the threads that came out of one of our previous surveys was it's really good to know what other people are doing and talking about and working through because we don't have that water cooler chat anymore. So yeah. wholesalers as aggregators of information, I think is going to be important in a different way moving forward because we're, we're going to be in a, in a unique position. It is a challenge managing team members. I'll tell you, Kurt, you know, my relationship with my internal, it's always over the phone, but in the pandemic, does your, does your phone calls go to direct voicemail 98% of the time or 99% of the time? <laughs> There's Which, tech, what, what percentage frequency for the voice? Is there? Okay. <laughs> yes. I don't know Jason that well, but I do know his voicemail really well. So that, that works <laughs> out. Well. Part of the job of a, of a wholesaler is also to make calls. So oftentimes. I see. You see what he did there? That's why. That's next level. That's good. That's why he won internal of the year last year because of that. <laughs> Beautiful. We're supposed to be on the phone. So when it goes straight to voicemail, that's a good sign. We're doing our job. He's ABC for you. I, I, I dig it. Awesome. So those two good ones for you. Keep on rolling. What's number three? Um, so I thought content and content creation. So obviously you're not in front of clients. Um, a way to stand in front of them is to create content. So small blogs, a weekly update. Uh, Q&A videos with staff. And then I thought this was an important one as well because people take in information different ways so you can repurpose your content. So turn your videos into blogs or social posts and vice versa. And like I said, everyone prefers to consume information differently. So repurposing what you've already created can save time and resources and reach more clients. 
or prospects? I think that's – so this is, this is my thinking. If you're a financial professional, you're talking to your clients every day or every week. Right? The questions they're asking, the conversations that you're talking about, the topics you're, you're engaging in, that's your content. There's hesitancy. I think people think that a blog or a podcast or video content is really heavy lifting. And if you've never done it before and you're doing 100% by yourself, yeah, it probably is. But there are several very reasonably priced services out there that help you in any one of those categories. So I, I think it's a great idea to take the conversations you're having, put a multiplier on it by using digital to enhance that. And that's all you're doing. You're just multiplying the same message that you're already having with your clients. Absolutely. I think the key, Jason, is like, what do you have available that you can use that as different mediums for communication? Because right. once you have the contact, that's content, that's the, that's the core, well, then just put it on a few different things. You know? And I can use myself in an example when you talk about repurposing it. Because if I'll like, say I'm reading the Wall Street Journal and I click on something and it's a video, I'm out of that because I'm not going to watch that video. I'd rather read an article. So by repurposing it, you can reach a, a larger audience of people like me who probably won't watch a video or people who don't want to read the article would rather watch a video. Just by repurposing it in different mediums, you can reach more people. What's number four? Paying attention to your time and scheduling time for specific tasks that need to be tackled. I think um, you know a hard thing to do when you're working remotely is it's easy to get distracted, easy to, to move on to something else. You want to make an intentional effort uh, to map out your time throughout the day and even have a reasonable ending time. You know, I, I read a lot about when I was doing the research is people have been working a lot more since they are working from home. There's really no time to leave the office. And, and it's good for your mental health to make it time to, to stop every day and, and take a little break. And maybe that'll rejuvenate you for the next day. I have a dedicated office before pre-pandemic. I take my laptop. You know, I go outside, go to the dining room table, go, you know, go move around. And now I've found that it's it's mentally stabilizing just to keep my computer in here. And I know when in here it's work mode. When I go out there, it's not work mode. It's the only barrier that I now have to separate my work from my non-work life. I was surprised with some of the people in the survey that we did that would struggled with the exercise portion of it. And I think, you know, we talk about, hey, time block for things like biz dev, but like you can also time block to say, this is when I'm going to be, this hour and a half is when I'm at the gym. You're good with that, Kurt. Like you're like, I'm. I, this is my gym time. Like it's on my calendar. We can't record during that time. Yeah, Build you're always trying to schedule at lunch. Yeah. That's a good one, Jason. I like that. Um, are we, that was four. Now we're down to the last one. Last but not least. Uh, this is a, a fairly easy one, but asking for feedback, asking from your team or your clients feedback on how uh, remote work is doing. Maybe use some great ideas from from your clients or from your team to improve what you're doing. It's always, you know, I think we've always from the beginning of the pandemic to now, we've all improved a little bit, but we continue to do that. And it's important to ask for feedback to, to get some better ideas. Surveys and advisory councils are two great ways to do that continuously and regularly get feedback from clients about what's working, what's not working. I'm big, big fan of those two ideas. A couple of points on surveys and feedback. One is ask open-ended questions. Don't ask like, did you like this event? Because you're not going to get good feedback unless it's open-ended. And two is survey, but like, don't do it too much. After everything, you get a survey and it's just like, no. In fact, you I know, don't, I like, don't fill them out unless they, it's yeah. unless they dangle some sort of little carrot out there, you know, throw a gift card out there. Or something. 
I totally agree with that. I mean, but you can do this when you're having a conversation with a client. Maybe after you're done with the review, you say, hey, you know, we've been doing uh, work from home or, or remote work, virtual work since the beginning of the pandemic. How are things going? Is there something that I can do uh, better that you think um, you've been thinking about that you wish that we were doing differently? And the same thing with your team, how you're working with your team. You know, what can we do differently to make this better for you? Yeah. Well, and I like open-ended, but I also like stack ranking. So if you say like, what are... Here are five things, put them in order of the most importance for you. So I think what we're both saying is like, get away from binary uh, yeah. questions, but give different ways to, to answer those questions. And, you know, if you, if you just do small samples within a practice a, a few times a year, you know, you're not really overwhelming. I think you can reasonably spread that out. These are good, Jason. Thank you for doing the research on this. Um, all really good things to think about. Um, we may bring Jason back for a number two on this, maybe a part two. It looks like he had some other ideas that we're not going to get to. Would love to hear from you on this. I know we surveyed you before, but if there's any kind of latest and greatest on you know, working remotely, hit us up at the whole truth at touchstonefunds.com. We're going to move into our episode with Mary Mock here. So why we're having Mary back on, first of all, you guys all loved her the last time when the feedback was incredible. It was one of our most listened episodes um, as we just alluded to in the beginning, she got a huge promotion uh, to run our sales distribution. And anyone who's listening to this podcast should know her. That's really what it comes down to. We are trying to build a different type of, of firm, a different type of experience. And so Mary's going to cover some of those things. She's also spent a ton of time uh, working in practice management. Kurt and I got into, you know, what was what are some of the things you worked on historically? What are some of the things that people are working on right now? It was a really, really good dialogue. We also covered some fun stories from her history in the business. So stick around. Uh, it's a great conversation. We'll be right back with Mary Mock. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth. We are delighted to have uh, Mary Mock back on the show. Really happy. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. It's good to always have a part two. Yeah. Officially a recurring guest. We had a great time with you first time on. Mary covered Supernova. It was very well received. But some big news with Ms. Mock. I I'm starting to call her Queen Mary, Kurt. I don't know if that's a thing that's going to catch on, but... Huge promotion. You're uh you got promoted to basically running the whole show here at Touchstone, which first of all, let's start with a congratulations. That's pretty awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I just wanted to clarify number one, they're probably not gonna let you call me the queen of anything, although personally you can call me the queen of anything you ever want to, because that's just amazing. Fair. Um but just to uh clarify that I'm running sales and distribution, and that's the portion of my universe. So Head of distribution. Is, isn't that the official title? I think so, yeah. Did you buy yourself something nice? I hope you did. <laughs> um, Celebrate. Well, I, no, not yet. I mean, I guess not really. Um, no, it was around Christmas. So I think I like got my hair cut. So that was something that was good. <laughs> I mean, eventually I'll take not a vacation maybe cut. if I ever can. So no, I mean, nothing great. I guess for Christmas, I bought myself a watch. That's kind of a nice thing that maybe I could say I wouldn't have bought if I didn't have a different job. I got to treat yourself. I can speak for all of us. We're, we're super happy that you had that job. So that happy. That job. Um, we heard the announcement that you got hired. We're like, you got to have Mary back on the show, which we wanted to, to have anyways. Um, and what we're going to focus on today is twofold. One, What's the vision? You know, what what do what do you see this firm looking like? And for those listening, don't tune out. It's not a touchstone commercial, but what 
we're trying to do is something a little bit different. So we think it'd be interesting for us to to talk to you about that. You know, what is it that we're trying to do here? Um, but also get into the practice management stuff. The reason that Mary got promoted, one of the many is this firm has gravitated towards being business consultants. It's, you know, what what this podcast is about, what our strategy is. And that's a big part of Mary taking this job. So we're going to cover what is Touchstone, what's, what's the focus, what's the goal. But we're going to also get into some specific practice management topics because that's pretty much all we all spend our time doing. And we're going to download more of Mary's expertise. Does that seem reasonable to you, Mary? Yeah, that sounds great. Excited. So hot out the gate. Why did you want this job? That's a great question. Um, so I think, you know, I've been with Touchstone or Western Southern as a firm for more than 16 years now. And I've had a chance to really see us grow from, you know, just a, a, a tiny firm with a couple of products who, you know, survived um, by having really good relationships with advisors and by approaching them in a way that was different to this organization now that, you know, isn't um, quite to brand name recognition with all advisors yet, but it's certainly, you know, grown into a really robust organization that has begun in earnest to differentiate ourselves in a market that is laden with consolidations and, you know, with a lot of the the sameness, quote unquote, you know, that we find in our industry as it relates to, you know, wholesalers, financial professionals, and just asset managers in general. And so for me, I really love the the potential of not just where we are today, but where we are growing as a firm. And that's really attractive to me. But more so than that, I mean, why this particular role is so exciting for me, you know, at Touchstone versus any other firm is because of the people and the culture that we've built. So there are some phenomenal individuals in our organization, you two being part of that group. Um, and it's really rare to find that type of talent and passion and intelligence in such a collective force. So for me, it was a really great opportunity to have some influence over where we grow as a firm. So when you when you talk about Kurt and I, you left out good looking for both of us. <laughs> I figured you'd cover that. So. Smart, passionate, good looking. Yeah, I mean, like These that was. My wife has to say I to just, me every I night. I knew I could bed. count yeah. on you guys to cover that. Did you, you give her a script? <laughs> this is what you must read to me before you. Kurt. You are great Reaffirm looking. Reaffirm me, please. Let's go. You're good enough. You're smart enough, and we all like you, Kurt. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, because the truth is, this is how I see the world and why I'm so excited for you in the role and, and your vision is like, no one really needs another generic wholesaler. They don't. And they'll tell you that. And, they'll and they're right. Uh, by the mm -hmm. way, you, good wholesalers, you should absolutely carve time. But the average generic, hey, I'm going to come in and sell you. It's just like, no one needs another one. But let, let me pose it a little bit more specific to you, Mary. Like, why should a financial professional meet with their touch on wholesale? Like what, what is the experience you want them to get? Yeah. So, I mean, just to make a, a comment too, you know, no one should or want to meet with a generic wholesaler, but you know, for the financial professionals, they also recognize that prospects and clients don't want to meet with a generic financial advisor either. And so in that respect, right. we're all really yeah. aligned. Uh, you brought up an important word, which is experience. We strive to have a vision in terms of how we impact our industry that is different than what the average experience is for advisors. The whole approach, though, is, is sort of that intersection of 
consulting and coaching, and it's finding whatever is most important to the advisor or to the person that's our constituent. And then we translate that into us being of value to them in whatever it is that means. And so we strive to be of value at every level of their organization based on what their needs might be. And the benefit in doing that is, you know, we become a good um, sort of associate or advocate for um, and in, in some cases, a driver of their success by the way that we interact with them. We try to have valuable interactions that give an advisor an experience that's really different from what they're used to seeing and getting. Yeah. I, and I think that was important. We're going to get into practice management in a second, but we, we wanted to share that because what we're trying to do is build a very different kind of firm. Um, and if you listen to this podcast, I, we thought it was worth you hearing you know, that vision and what we're looking to, to try to achieve. If you were giving advice, here's where I would focus all of my time or focus my attention on getting better. If you're a financial professional in 2021, what are some of those things? What are the key points in your view? Well, if you look at the, the pillars of modern wealth management, it's about, you know, having a holistic relationship with your clients, making sure that you're addressing more than the singular element that is, you know, someone's investments. It's about addressing the needs today and in the future of clients. And it's really, you know, being curious to understand what drives, what motivates clients, and then managing to those needs. And so that sounds really simple, but the more ingrained clients are with advisors, um, the better that advisor or professional is going to be able to meet or exceed that client's needs. But also the, the better the experience for the client, the better the relationship, the stickier that relationship, we should have really solid relationships with those that are our clients. And we should know, um, and be able to respond to what those needs are. And those needs are more complex than they've ever been. It's really more than just looking at the simple, um, like the old model of, of being a stockbroker way back in the day. It's just so much different now. So let's say you've got the same issue with two different teams and you're bringing the same solution or, or um, consulting approach to two different teams. Think about your history one of those teams executes and one doesn't like, is it simply an execution thing? In other words, what makes that engagement super successful and not successful at all? Is it just a motivated team on the other side? Uh, when I'm asked to define who those individuals are, who potentially will have the most success, um, the answer is really always the same. And that is some people who are going to execute upon what they say they want to work on or, you know, people are going to do what they say they're going to do. So those who can execute come out ahead. Yeah. And you could learn things about making execution easier. I've definitely learned a ton over time on, on what, you know, there's some people that come in and just want to, Oh, let's do everything within the next month. Um, those have worked out less for me than those that we like take baby steps that are you know, meaningful, but still baby steps. Cause these are busy people. Is it, is I, I Kurt and, and Mary, I wonder if that's been your experience too. Well, yeah. Cause the, the, those people that want to do everything overnight are looking for a silver bu bullet a lot of times and silver bullets don't exist. What, as, as particularly 
in a complex industry with hard problems. And it's sometimes our job to help people pump the brakes and tamper enthusiasm and, and make it more realistic to say, look, like all of these are maybe achievable over a year or two, but you know, we, we kind of stick with our 90 day chunks. Let's think about the next three months, get, get through some objectives, set some goals, hit those marks, and then move on to the next problem. And, you know, the irony is we, we find advisors who say, you know, I really don't have the time to take those two steps or whatever it is, you know, that they're, they're working on over the next 30, 60 or 90 days. And what they don't realize is by accomplishing those things, they actually give themselves back more time in their day. And so investing a little bit now gives them that freedom that they're looking for and it lessens their constraints. We're here sitting, talking on a podcast, um, which is not something, at least for wholesalers, that I know that that happens with much frequency in our industry. What do you see as kind of the future of digital media with asset management? Are asset managers going to play a role in, in kind of curating content specifically for not just financial professionals, but, but kind of hyper niche financial professionals? Or how, how do you see that evolving over the next several years? Yeah, I mean, I would suggest that it, what you guys are doing is really rare. I mean, you know that there aren't many uh, wholesalers uh, who are, um, A, with an organization that would allow that, quite honestly. It's something that's unknown. And, you know, in our industry, we have to know things really well for a long time before we feel comfortable allowing those things to happen. But that's where sometimes we miss out on innovation and creativity and things that really do drive change in our organization or in our industry. So I'm really happy, first of all, that you guys are so competent at what you do and that you're so interested in, in reaching your audience in a way that's unique. Um, and it's, and the content that you have is in many cases, uh, easily differentiated, but it's very thought provoking and it's, it, it causes those of us who feel like we've been in this industry for a long time to go, hmm, you know what, that's a really good point. So I love that aspect of what you do. Now, do I think it will be really mainstream in a very short period of time? Uh, I doubt that as we've worked with some of our other uh, partners um, that provide software and, and training um, programs for us. Um, and I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the, the biggest names out there that um, our conversations with them around maybe videos in general and things like that and, and, and reaching advisors through social media, um, they would suggest that firms are still trying to wrap their arms around what that content looks like from a compliance standpoint. And so I, I don't know if it's going to be really mainstream anytime soon. Excellent. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. And then Mary, you want to get into some some mailbag questions, some fun questions, have a little fun. You up for that? I'm ready. Thanks. Awesome. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Mary Mock. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back, everybody. We're going to get into the mailbag. So the, the first question from the mailbag is from me to you. <laughs> Which are harder to coach, wholesalers or financial professionals? I mean, I think it's individual. The first thing is, it's not really a fair question. I know. That was, it's how big of a really dodge a, is that? I'm not going to, we can't, we can't let you do that. We're about to get into I'm, her parenting spiel. It's, it's, what is it? Fair, not equal? Fair, but not equal because everybody gets what they need, but it doesn't mean they get exactly the same what the other one needs. Else. Followed by the same thing that I tell all of my kids. I love you more than your brother. Just don't tell your brother. But then I tell all three of them that. So that's how that works. 
Um, so that, that's a real answer, though, because so first of all, it's not not necessarily a fair question because I'm not coaching people to do the same thing. So the commonalities are wholesalers and advisors are generally both very type A. Um, they're typically high achievers, um, not shy or low on self-esteem. So that sets the table. Number one, wholesalers that I'm coaching generally report to me. And so sometimes, I mean, it's a little bit easier because they are, you know, compelled in some respects to have to work with me. They're a captive audience, right? Financial advisors, it's not quite the same. That's a purely voluntary type of relationship. And so it might be hard to get them to engage. But what I find is when advisors are engaged, um, they tend to mostly follow through because they, they're choosing to have that relationship with me. But let me just be clear. Neither one of you are easy to deal with. You're all different. <laughs> but you're, worth, that, but you're worth it. There we go. That's what we're really trying to get to. This is a question for both of you. I'll just start hitting these mailbag questions. We'll do maybe three or four and then one that I need to address solo. Um, so reflecting back on your wholesaling days, what was your best move as a wholesaler? In other words, like something that you're like, oh man, this is, I do this and it really is pretty unique and creative. So that's one. And then what was your absolute worst situation with a financial professional that is podcast friendly? I'll, I'll start. So a, a, a dumb little move that I have oversized pride in is um, I'm a big laminator. So I, <laughs> I find that laminate, like whether you're working with like building models, whether you're talking about a, a service matrix, you know, there, there's a lot of deliverables with this stuff. I just think there's something about laminating that kind of stuff that it, it really crystallizes, you know, what you're working on with the financial professional. And actually my, my buddies make fun of me for doing that. They, they think it's completely ridiculous, but I just, I find a lot of pride in, in laminating important documents. I think that's hilarious that you just called yourself a big laminator. I'm sorry. That was just fantastic. So I know who's getting a pocket protector for Christmas <laughs> this year. <laughs> what, what, how about, how about item two, uh, Kurt on that? Like, have you ever been in a crazy situation with FA? What was like a worst situation you've been in? Uh, the, the worst situation and we'll see if we can air this or not. Um, <laughs> but Good. it was a dinner with, um, a financial professional and this was not with touchstone if that matters. But, um, I, it was a client dinner where, and he was in the entertainment business. So it was like entertainment attorneys, musicians, like, you know, a kind of a ruckus little crowd. And, um, I lost control of the wine ordering and ended up having a, the most expensive meal of my life. And I did not <laughs> sleep a wink that night and called my boss the next morning to confess what I had done and I was expecting to get reamed. And then I, I, I was actually very grateful for the response because it was more of like, hey, this is this is a an expensive lesson, but an important one. Don't let it happen again. That's funny. That's Mary Bell, what, what was your good what what was some of your good moves? What was a great thing you did as a wholesaler that made you successful that you think is kind of unique to you? It's so simple. Um, two things actually. It's it's so simple, but it was really effective. I used to sit down when I was a brand new wholesaler and I really didn't know what I was doing, which is true. Um, and it was the middle of the financial crisis. So no one wanted to talk about products. So I used to sit down with advisors and I would say, tell me how you got into this business. Because now, you know, there are 
you know, there's education that supports, you know, working as a financial advisor. There's, you know, people have a direct path to how they end up as financial professionals. But back in the day, it was a really interesting sort of um, amalgamation of reasons and ways people got into financial advising. And that became such a great question. I learned so much about each person and it gave them a chance in a really, you know, conversational way to let me in and, and teach me about, you know, something about themselves. And it was really great. I mean, there's one story, I know we don't really have time for me to give you all of my wholesaling stories, but there was one person who is to this day, he's just an icon in the community where I live. He worked for a bank and, you know, I live in, in Charlotte down in the South. And so he, they eventually flew him to, um, an, um, a, an, uh, an advisory firm, a broker dealer flew him to New York to interview for this job. And he was sitting in the, in the lobby and there was the, like the real old stock ticker, like the real stock ticker, not the electronic one sitting in the middle of the floor. And he was in a tan suit out in wall street. And the person who was interviewing for the same job sitting there in a blue pinstripe suit and all this stuff, reading the ticker, you know, tape. And this person had no idea how to do that. And he sat in front of the person who was the, the president of the organization. And he was like, look, sir, I don't know why they brought me up here. I'm not going to be a good fit for this job. And he said, I don't, this other guy knew how to read the ticker. You know, I don't even know what that is. And he was like, slow down, son. He's like, are you dumb? He was like, no. And he goes, can you learn? And he goes, yeah. And this person went on to be, I think for years, one, two or three in terms of top production in Charlotte for a long, long time. And I was one of only a few wholesalers who knew that story, not because he wasn't willing to share, but because when people sat down with him for lunch or, you know, were lucky enough to get a meeting, they just dove into what their firm did and how, you know, we, they could sell products to him and um, didn't ever take the time, I guess, either didn't want to, were intimidated by or didn't know to ask um, and really missed the bigger picture of what a wonderful person this guy was and what an interesting story. Yeah, that's fantastic. How about a how about a crazy situation? I'm almost positive you've had a few of those. Yeah, I had uh, a a very peripheral um, interaction with an advisor in um, is somewhere in the south. We'll just put it that way. And um, I had a great interaction with him. Male, he was great, no problems. We had a, a really good met him at an office lunch, a really great meeting. Um, and I, he'd asked for more information and I asked my internal partner to follow up. And I don't remember the specifics of the story, but it was really benign. And this person followed up and he was a, just not a great person to my internal. Really rude. I mean, you know, things that are just, that are professional regardless, even if it was something that, you know, my internal did to offend him, which he did not at the time. But anyway, so this person um, was really rude. And so ultimately, um, I ended up calling this person and let's just say I, I handled it uh, by reaching out and, and letting that person know that the way they behaved towards my internal was not appropriate. And at the end of the day, that is why the sales desk started calling me mama mock way back in the day. <laughs> That's right. I learned from you on that. I actually did that once when someone was really kind of evil to it, beaten up on internals, man. That's, that's I kinda, didn't know that was the origin I mean, of that story. Honestly. Kinda. Or that name. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, I left uh, out some details, but I mean, it, that's, I know. that's the story, so to speak. Okay, Mary. Uh, and so we're, I'm going to do a couple of questions directed to one of us instead of all of us. Um, this is because I think this next one, Kurt and I have covered a bit, So, but I want to hear 
your response. This is from uh, Rick and Arinda. How do financial professionals go about implementing their service model? Do they have staff to hand them a list of clients to call, schedule meetings, or do they do it themselves? What things do they give them staff versus what they do? What is the $1 million plus advisor doing in this regard? So I guess, how do you think about, Mary, after you've designed the specifics of your service model, the implementation, um, how do you make it reality? You know, it depends on the the team resources, whether it's a team or sole practitioner. And so, I mean, there are definitely some constraints, but optimally, um, those the if you look at it like the inverted, you know, dentist office where the the dentist is the person who's really, you know, at the the top of the pyramid. But when you you know go in for your cleaning, it's the hygienist who schedules you, the person who checks you out at the front, you know, all of that stuff is really running the day-to-day of the operation. The same thing is true in, in this respect. So it's the the CSA or the dedicated person who then uh, manages the calendar of how often and, and what those interactions look like for the advisor. So it should be a well-oiled machine if done appropriately. And then do you want me to answer that second part as well about the million dollar producers? How do they do it? Yeah, I mean, that, that what, the, what really what there's getting at is like, what are the best teams doing here? Yeah, because I was going to say, if you if your question is, what are the million dollars producers doing? Um, how are they doing it? Well, some are doing it really well and some aren't doing it really well. So just to say you've grown a large practice doesn't mean you're running the most efficient and effective practice. And that's just a reality, right? All of us are, are works in progress. And so the best teams are doing it a variety of ways, but some of the ways that the best teams are doing it is they are reducing their clients to an appropriate number who have high enough assets that they can manage and they service the heck out of them and give provide to them a standard of care that is unheard of in our industry. Now that's like the unicorn of financial advising and building a practice, but it's what we should all be aspiring toward. I mean, others, you know, look at things in a more hybrid or a tiered capacity where there are levels of service provided to clients who who qualify at a certain level, but those who are who fall into specific categories are given a specific standard of care that is not only a great experience for that person, but that meets the complexities and the needs of that particular client. Those that are doing it well are are structured in what they're doing and they're they're consistent in their application and deployment. Kurt, I'll give this to you. In this particular case, you've got a team. That's very successful, but has top-heavy books where where they're they're growing pretty rapidly, and and they're having trouble difficulty servicing the bottom part of the book. And the bottom part of the book isn't even they've got they're fortunate that it's not like super low households. How do you handle that? Um, would you add to uh, the team to be able to service those bottom households, or would you systematize it and do things that are bulk? Yeah. So how. I mean, I, I would start with questions, and the questions I would ask would be, uh, "How's everybody spending their time now?" Because you know, we 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 built that client service calculator, which I I love as a tool because it shows in in black and white kind of how much time you have, where people spending their time. So, going through that exercise would be the place that that I would start. And and maybe add, yeah, I mean, it was such an interesting comment where he was like, "Listen." Um, if we lost a million dollar client, like they're just fortunate. Like they're like, we really wouldn't feel it. So it's like, do we spend time putting a lot more energy into our prospects, which could, which could be 10 X that, or do we spend it servicing the bottom of our book, which are still good clients? Yeah. You can only continue to grow at the pace that you can service your current clients. It's the theory that you, you know, you catch fish and you, 
put them in the live well, that well is only going to hold so many fish. So some of it is you have to decide what your model is, and then you match the the clients that best fit that model. Deliberate growth, you know, um, really being intentional about who's in the practice and why they're in the practice and how you will appropriately manage those relationships is the the key driver to success because, you know, we've talked about supernova on a previous podcast and that is you're only as strong as your weakest level of service. It's very true. And sometimes you have to shrink in order to be able to grow. This is another separate question that we got that that's related to that. You know, this is a team that describes themselves as not really the touchy feely client service type, you know, they, 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 they really like, you know, they, they deal with what they describe as high end executives that want them to run money. They're not a planning based practice. They really are just like very investments focused for them. What's the baby step? So if they're not a touchy feely practice and it's not about financial planning, then, you know, I, I wouldn't send them something that's a really heartfelt, emotional sort of quarterly connecting newsletter. I would send them very uh, topical uh, market related information that is specific to something that matters. I would be the most knowledgeable I could about those things that impact that type of client. And I would direct only things that will resonate with that individual. And I would, I would get rid of the noise because people who sit in that C-suite level uh, generally are devoid of time. Excellent. This next one from Doug in Oakland, he's onboarding a new hire and, you know, he's got a pretty decent sized team, but he always wants to maintain a great culture. You know, Mary, we always talk about culture. How, how do you, how do you think about integrating someone into your culture? Is it just spending time with them? Is it doing things social? It's a difficult question, but I'm curious how you would respond and Kurt, please chime in as well. You know, if you hire the wrong person or a person who could have great skills, but who doesn't match your core values or doesn't understand, you know, what your ethos is or what you're driving for as an organization can ultimately not be a positive influence on your culture. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done on the front end of hiring to make sure that person is adequately exposed or that at least you've well communicated to the person than what that shared vision might be. Um, Tony Shea from Zappos, I can't think of the book right now, but it's um, a a great book and timely since he unfortunately passed away recently. Um, But there's a really interesting, like several paragraphs of his book about that talk about culture and understanding what it is. And, you know, from their perspective, Zappos wasn't a shoe company. Zappos was a company that made customers happy. And if everybody understood that on the way in, they were much better equipped to continue and carry through um, with customers and even in their interactions internally uh, and to purvey that culture. My mindset about culture and about um, really just making work organizations a nice place to be is that I, my philosophy is that every department, regardless of of who they are and, and what their who their own client might be, um, should approach their relationships internally as um, internal customers, right? If we all looked at ourselves internally as if we were customers in the same way that we service and build relationships with our external clients and we interacted in that same fashion, um, how much better would every organization be? All right. So I got, Mary, um, you you don't have to, do you want, I have a couple of questions on Bitcoin stuff. Do, do you want to drop off here and I could finish or do you want to hang around for the last two? You can definitely cover Bitcoin by yourself. Yeah. Um, yep. 
So good luck with that. Um, thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thanks, Mary. Appreciate being on. Great stuff as always. All right. Yeah. See you guys. All right, Kurt. Got a great question from Brad. Um, a couple of things. So he he wanted to deal with how to think about large tech and how to think about Bitcoin. So we cannot cover investments on this podcast. But but we you know this we've is tried. Get <laughs> but we did get the approval to talk a little bit about Bitcoin. So let me let me just make some a, a couple of comments here. So if you go back like three four years ago, when Bitcoin was sort of starting to become a thing, I, I had a lot of trouble with it as a concept, as an investment concept, like blockchain is super cool, but as an investment concept. And the reason is the same thing that I struggle with, with things like, like gold and commodities, the same thing I struggle with Bitcoin. It's, there's no cash flow associated with, there's no earnings. It's a supply and demand thing. It's like what someone else is willing to pay for it. I'm fine with that. I just don't know how much it's worth. But don't you think something like Bitcoin is more prone to frenzies? than something like oil sure. or gold. And, and so, I mean, I'd, sure, I'd expect but, but, high level of volatility with, with that currency. Yeah, but, but I'll tell you where things change. And I'm not just saying this after the recent run-up. Where it changed for me is, is this. Um, one is I think it makes absolute sense just to have some kind of uh, hedge to, to Federal Reserve activity in the markets. And that could be commodities. I just think Bitcoin should maybe make a decent hedge. The other thing that sort of made me think is when I started to see companies start to normalize it. And so we're here recently where Tesla added, you know, billions to there. I think you're going to see more companies do it. So I think would I own it um, as a hedge? Sure. It wouldn't be huge weights, but, but that's a big, big leap for me who never wanted to own things like gold and commodities. So to answer your question, Brad, I've, I've, I've evolved on this, and I think it's something that's probably probably worth at least considering where I wouldn't have said that two years ago. So you're netting out that it's a hedge versus an asset. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to get into like how to own it in a portfolio. I just say I would own it, and and for the reasons that I described, as, as a substitute to a part of of the allocation that, that probably doesn't have a great outlook right now, and then also to hedge. So that's where I'm at. I I, I I can't believe I'm saying it, but but I think it's I think it's worth uh, it's worth considering. Anyway, thank you guys for the questions. We missed about half that were sent in, so Kurt and I'll do a second mailbag. But thanks everyone for the questions. This is the whole truth. Stick with us. And welcome back, everybody. We are in our Costanza corner. Kurt, you are leading the way this time. So I feel like I'm stealing your thunder a little bit, but I saw this. And it was um, definitely more on brand for you, but Ooh. looking at the pictures, it's it's just adorable. Have you ever heard of, of a photographer named Greg Murray? No, but I know zero photographers, honestly. But you know animals, and that's why I thought you yes. might know him. So in 2017, he he published a picture book called Peanut Butter Dogs, which was just dogs with peanut butter on their face licking it (laughs) (laughs) so apparently it was such a gigantic success he tried he's doing a sequel that's called peanut butter puppies where he got 70 rescue dogs from 30 different shelters and did this gigantic project with them 
So uh, he just talks about like setting up the art space, which was just very like clean floors that he put paper down because he basically just gave these puppies some some multiple. So when they're licking it off the face of each other, it's super adorable. But um, I mean, here's like a Dalmatian with his tongue all the way extended, just coated with peanut butter. It just <laughs> looked like a really fun, adorable project, probably a good gift idea for someone in your life that loves animals. It was just really cute and and put me in an uplifted state of mind. So I thought you'd enjoy that side. I have three comments to this. Three comments. First off, how did I not know about this? Comment two, is this my Costanza Corner or your Costanza? I feel like I wrote this for you and yet I didn't. But the third thing is for anyone listening who I send gifts this year, um, expect this because I'm going to buy a bunch of these books and use them as gifts. I'm always thinking like, because you what's like a good it, gift? Regardless whether the other person does. Listen, if you receive a book of dogs eating peanut butter and it doesn't make you smile or make your day better, come on. Who are you? You're not a client of mine. I'll tell you that much. Um, it's, no, but I'm always it's really I'm, cute, man. I'm looking, I'm always looking for like interesting things. Like I always send people the wine and the champagne, but it's like to have some unique, interesting things that's out of the blue, like something like that, man, that's got to put a smile on your face. So, uh, that's a good one, Kurt. Uh, we will see you next time. You can find the whole truth and subscribe for free on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it. If you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple podcasts, it helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC.